G'day mate, 40 here. So, if there's anything good about this show, right, if I have any positive tendencies, if I make any contribution, if I am adding anything to your life, if I add anything to your understanding about what's going on in the world, what's going on inside of you, right, this is only true essentially to the extent that I'm emotionally honest. Right? If you're emotionally honest, then when something doesn't make sense, either you don't have the information you need, or people are lying to you. So, things like crypto, alright? Doesn't seem to make sense. Right? A lot of the arguments don't hold up. And so, that may just be because many of crypto's biggest boosters are lying to you. Like Sam Bankman-Fried just got all sorts of positive press. Why did he get positive press? Because he was on the left and he presented himself as a person trying to do good things on the Democratic Party and so the left controls, dominates the media. So he got a ton of good press because he was aligned with the predominant values of the news media. So, if you looked at Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX and thought, I don't understand how they're making money, this doesn't make sense, then that's because they were lying to you. The news media was lying to you. Right? So, when I hear people tell me, oh, you know, I'm always honest, I'm always upright, you know, I always do the right thing, right? those people are lying to me, obviously. But most important of all, they're lying to themselves. And so, if you lie to yourself, you're going to be really lousy at detecting when other people are lying to you. But if you're honest with yourself, then it's going to ping for you when other people are lying to you. Then you notice some people are really good at detecting when other people are lying to them. That's because they're honest with themselves. Other people are terrible at noticing when other people are lying to them and manipulating them. That's because they're not honest with themselves. So this also applies to the news. Right? You read the news and it doesn't make sense. Right? The whole crypto boom, FTX boom doesn't make sense. That's because people are lying to you. If the uh, transsexual revolution does not seem to you like a good thing, it's because the people who are telling you that it's a good thing are lying to you. The World Cup is in Qatar. That doesn't make sense. That's because people are lying to you. Right? Qatar only achieved the World Cup by bribing people. All right? So, as soon as it announced that the World Cup would be played in Qatar, you immediately started thinking of 10 reasons why this is a really bad idea. All right? Those people who are telling you it was a good idea were lying to you. Right? FIFA was lying to you. FIFA was essentially bought off. Right? FIFA is incredibly corrupt. And that's also how the world works. If there are decisions made in your business, in your line of work, in your school, in your community that don't make any sense, that's because they're, and you're emotionally honest, it's because either there's information that you don't know, or people are lying to you. So, Qatar getting the World Cup is a great example of how much of the world works, right? By things going on behind the scenes, secret deals, skullduggery, 
right? All sorts of things don't make sense that are bad for soccer in this instance, right? Bad for the fans, bad for the world. Right? Why did this happen? Because a small number of people got bribed. So a lot of things happen because you've got a small number of people who are able to make things happen even if it's bad for the group. Right? So the incentives for corporations aren't exactly the same as the incentives for meeting individuals in a corporation. The incentives for a group are not the same as the individual incentives for people who dominate the group. So when you ask who benefits, then that's a great way of opening up how the world works. Like who benefits from this scam? Who benefits from Qatar getting the World Cup? Uh, obviously Qatar benefits, but the people who made the decision and got paid off, right, they benefited and everyone else gets screwed. So there are all sorts of public issues where the general public good has no constituency, such as free speech. It's not really much of a free speech coalition with a lot of funding. Right? So there are all these very specialized, well-funded groups have an interest in restricting speech, such as the Anti-Defamation League. And they're funded and they're organized and they're highly competent. And so the people who are opposing them are not nearly as well-funded, frequently not as competent, and may not even be as strongly motivated. So you've got a public good, free speech, but those people who are lined up to protect the public good they don't have the funding, they don't have the incentives, they don't have the motivation, and uh, very likely don't have the competency to, be, you know, to pull things off. G'day mate, 40 here. We're at Manly, going on a walkabout. So, been listening to some of Mark Shapiro's lectures on Zaharia Frankel. He might be considered the founder of conservative Judaism. And uh, Mark Shapiro says he was a greater scholar than Abraham Geiger, who may be considered the founder of Reform Judaism. And a greater scholar than Shimshon Raphael Hirsch, might be considered the founder of modern Orthodox Judaism. So all three of the modern denominations of Judaism got their denominational start in Germany in the 19th century. So Zachariah Frankel, he wasn't a left-winger like Abraham Geiger in the Reform. He regarded himself as a creator of the historical positive school. <laughs> so he saw Judaism as you know, developed over time rather than just you know dropped by God from man to Mount Sinai 3200 years ago and he also took a positive perspective on it rather than the more critical perspective of reform now, somehow that historical positive moniker didn't really take off okay better watch ourselves here at the, the police institute So, 
Mark Shapiro notes that uh, all the modern movements of Judaism they all regard themselves as carrying the mantle of the Pharisees. So, from a non-Jewish perspective, right, the Pharisees are supposed to be the bad guys from the perspective of the New Testament and Christianity, the Pharisees are legalistic and small-minded and, and petty. But, from Jewish perspective, like all one Jewish denominations they carry the mantle of the Pharisees from Jewish perspective the Pharisees were dynamic and creative adapting uh, Judaism to changing times and Mark Shapiro talks about finding a couple of posaics from 18th and 19th century who were A-OK with with counting women in a minion, a prayer minion, that's a quorum of ten males traditionally to constitute a minion to be able to say certain prayers. And Mark Shapiro pointed it out to his Harvard professors at Twersky and said how radical this was and Dr. Twersky said what determines whether something's radical or not is time. Right? Time and space, community, situation. That situation changes things, whether they're considered radical or acceptable. So there are a whole bunch of beliefs that are totally unacceptable today, but were acceptable 120 years ago. Okay, so 120 years ago, Jews were regarded as a race. Right? There was race science. People felt good about their race, including white people. And times have changed. That's no longer socially acceptable. So you want to form some kind of identitarian movement, you're going to be isolated, rejected, marginalized, persecuted if you're white and you try to do it on the basis of white racial identity. But you do it on the basis of Christianity, then it's much less controversial. So, instead of talking about race, you just talk about Christ as King. And you see, this is the approach taken by Nick Fuentes and uh, Godwood and a whole bunch of other dissident right thinkers. They realize that there's no, no future in an explicitly racial identity. You have to have to fit your cause into the mantle of what works. So just like all Jewish denominations situate themselves under the mantle of the Pharisees. So two revolutionary movements of the 21st century are not going to usually be very successful if they come out and say we're revolutionary. Right? Usually you're going to be more successful if you tie yourself into tradition some way, like make the case that you're socially acceptable. So no one came along and said, oh, we're starting a new religion. People said, no, we're just fulfilling what's already here. We're just 
reforming what's already here we're just you know, setting straight what's already here and that's a formula that works like coming along straight out and saying we're here to create a revolution like Richard Spencer used to talk about and that's a suicidal path people don't want to sign on for that now you can tie yourself into the past and practice eisegesis right? meaning you read whatever meaning you desire into the past into the text even if it's not there as opposed to exegesis where you just try to deduce from the text what's there so you can read meaning into it and still tie yourself into tradition but you need a winning formula you need something that people can hold on to you need to show that you've got some time-tested formula that uh, you're wired into the wisdom practice and rituals of the past you can have a lot more success with that approach coming along saying hey we're going to change everything so how much reforming can you do until you leave orthodox Judaism so one definition is that uh, orthodox Jews accept the authority of the Shulchan Aruch which is a 15th century four volume compendium of Jewish law by Yosef Karo and we don't always hold by the Shulchan Aruch today right? Jewish law has adapted and changed since the issuing of the Shulchan Aruch but if you explicitly come out and say that you're jettisoning the Shulchan Aruch then that's going to leave you outside of Orthodox Judaism now what you need to do if you're going to work within a system within a group within a tradition, within a community, within a people you have to get other people to sign on so if you just unilaterally abrogate the Shulchan Aruch you're not going to have any pull within Orthodox Judaism but if you can phrase things in a way that uh, garners support from many other members of your group, right? Your fellow Orthodox Jews or whoever your group is, then you're much more likely to be successful. Now, many people in dissident movements, they really want to be successful. They just want to feel as though they're edgy. They just want to feel important. Right? They're just in it for the feels. They, they, they prefer to live in their delusions rather than in reality and so those people are going to be successful but if you're going to be successful with your group, your cause reforming your people, your tradition, your, your religion your nation's politics you have to get others to sign on and Usually there are far more effective ways than directly trying to recruit people to your cause. Like if you can subtly insinuate that uh, they came up with it on their own, they made their own journey to where you're at. And people can change effortlessly if they feel that they have agency and they are the force behind the change. But if you directly 
try to change people, they always resist. So it's not as easy getting communal support, right? As people find it a lot easier to just go it alone. They have a lot more freedom, a lot more ease, but your work doesn't have as much resonance. You're much more likely to get ignored. Now this would also apply to my father. My father tried to reform the Seventh-day Adventist Church without gathering sufficient support among the administrators who had the power to bring about these changes. And so even though he privately got many scholars or had many scholars on his side, the administrators, the people who had the power, the canny, sophisticated political players in the church, did not sign on. And in the end, Seventh-day Adventist Church rejected my father and rejected his reform of the message. And uh, Seventh-day Adventism is more traditional and distinctive and gone in the very opposite direction of my father's teachings. And my father is being left to the sidelines. So that's what usually happens if you pay no mind to your level of support. You pay no mind to recruiting people using subtlety and flattery and care and compassion, right? Then you're going to have a lot more success than if you just try to bulldoze people or if you're just so sure that you're right, then people aren't going to listen to you. So we pretty much do everything with the consent of the community. Once you arouse enough opposition, right, you're going to be flattened. I mean, Richard Spence was a strong guy, but after the Hellgate controversy, he fought so he was flattened. In fact, the cumulative toll of the hatred directed towards him has shifted him back into a mainstream perspective from 2020 on. So just can't take living on the outskirts of society any longer. Right? It's very painful to be rejected by society and the subject of tremendous opprobrium. It's a lot easier to work within society. But it requires a, a discipline. It requires a self-abnegation. It requires and taking other people's feelings into consideration. And for some people, this is natural. Like for healthy people, this is natural. Right? If you're one of those people who naturally moves towards people rather than away or against, right? then taking other people's feelings into consideration will come naturally. You'll be much more socially successful. But if you are, by inclination, someone who moves away from people, moves against people, like my father and me, through much of our lives, we've been much more naturally inclined to move away from people or against people rather than toward people. So that largely accounts for our social failures. Now you can form relationships, particularly with a spouse, and I think with my, my mother, and that helped moderate my father's tendencies to move against and to move away from people and 
So those, those tendencies were muted, you learn to move with people, move towards people, and you know, got along socially much better. But when she died, then uh, you know, his life was thrown into turmoil and you know, moving away from people, moving against people, became stronger and stronger. Though, I'm sure my stepmother at times was a moderating influence in ways. In the end, the tendency to move away just became dominant. He got kicked out of the church's ministry. So a formula for social success is move towards people, moves towards the traditions that they love, the practices that they love, the interpretations that they love, and then seek to update them or modify them or slightly redirect them in a direction that is congenial with people and then you'll be able to build a following and a much more effective social movement. G'day mate, Forty here. I'm listening to a Mark Shapiro lecture and uh, makes the point that uh, Italians just have a very different attitude towards the body. Even Jewish Italians. It's always going to have five. It's going to say five heads because it's five chapters. But look what the little boys are doing. And can anyone explain to me why? This is obviously a uh, uh, something. There's something. This is part of the uh, artistic uh, symbolism in Italy uh, during the uh, 17th century. Uh, uh, 18th or 17th century. I, three boys urinating there, or uh, the, the booty. I don't know. And this is repeated four more times at the beginning of each section. Okay, so putting photos of boys urinating is not a major trend in Jewish holy books, right? Only happens with the Italian versions. Okay, so the main point is that uh, Italians tend to have very different attitude towards nudity than other Jews. So I had a friend who was an Orthodox Jewish nudist, but that's exceedingly, exceedingly rare. Right? That's not how Jews typically roll. Right? You'd be hard pressed to think of anything more non-Jewish than uh, public nudity. Right? That's uh, a Greek thing. Any other cultures do it. So the Catholics have their justification. All right, their Christian justifications for paintings of the nude body, but very rare thing in Jewish holy works such as prayer books. But uh, with the exception with Italian Jews. This appears in uh, in Venice in seventeen fifteen, but it's published by the um, the yeshiva, the Talmud Torah. They call it Talmud Torah. That's the yeshiva of Ferrara. And what it was is he had all the different rabbis 
Tamir Chachamim, who were members of the Yeshiva, would publish uh, their true vote. And uh, the editors of it, one of them we see here was Yitzvah Kompronti, the famous Yitzvah Kompronti, the Pacha Yitzvah. I said already that Professor David Malkiel was just coming out with a book in English, Academic Studies Press, on uh, this, is, this is an encyclopedia, a multi-volume encyclopedia of Halacha called the Pacha Yitzvah. Uh, and you see there the I actually think technically they're not called cherubs, they're uh, puti, I think, uh, which uh, we use the term puti for uh, young boys like that. And you see that, uh, well, you see they're naked, and uh, the nakedness in Italy, and a different approach to, to the human body that uh, we're used to, uh, less puritanical, and uh, I can show you numerous uh, title pages of Sfari, which have... Um, Okay, so Sforum means holy, holy books in uh, Judaism. I know of no example of any rabbi that ever protested these title pages, these pictures. And uh, I don't need to show you the name, just look at the book. I'm sure you've seen them all. Uh, today, they never would. They were considered enthusiastic. Uh, but uh, I think it's almost like uh, the Catholic justification of... Uh, the human body in, uh, in, in paintings, the same thing. Pope John Paul II even has a, gave a speech on this, which you can find online about when they did the, they reworked the Sistine Chapel, and he spoke about the human body. That's, that's the only way I can explain it. It definitely was not regarded as obvious. You have this in, and you, you don't only have it in Italian printing and international printing, you even have it in, uh, in Eastern European printings uh, as well. So, uh, so leave that aside, that's not an issue. But I want to show you that with something else, which I can't understand. All right, that's uh, Mark Shapiro there from Torin Motion. And uh, this is his uh, March 14 talk, The Rise of Reform and the Rabbinic Response. Here at Manly Beach. It's uh, 5.26 p.m. Sunday afternoon here. And a few hours ago on my long walkabout, I saw that Donald Trump has been reinstated to Twitter. So I think without a doubt, Twitter is going to be a much more interesting place with Donald Trump in it. And uh, even Richard Spencer, who's been just overwhelmingly critical about Trump for the past three years, he's starting to sympathize with Donald Trump again because the GOP establishment has turned so decisively against Trump. But if you're going to get Richard's latest insights, I must warn you, the price for a monthly subscription to his Substack, which is jam-packed with content, is now $9. Except for you, Kurt. I actually did uh, just to let you guys know I actually did increase the monthly rate to nine dollars um, I, I thought six was good for a while um, but and we have gotten a, uh, a I, I'm really happy with Substack I kind of wanted to go a little low um, because I wasn't a couple of things. I thought that there was at least a chance that I would get kicked off because, you know, I'm on Twitter. I don't think I'm going to get kicked off Twitter. 99% sure. I was kicked off YouTube for no good reason. So, yeah, the smarter you are, the better the chances are that you'll learn to play within the rules. So Richard Spencer, whatever your criticisms of him, he's a pretty smart guy. He's uh, learning to color between the lines, play within the rules. Um and so I was just a little bit tentative because I had um, heard the kind of core of this group that that, that it's growing out of um, during 2020 and for in 2021. We, we just kind of had a kind of like secret Substack, you could say. And we it was people who I had their email address. We kept it there. I didn't do any promotion um, because I we were still just kind of coming out of that era of you know the old right and blah 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 and getting deplatformed everywhere. So yeah, a key part of Richard Spencer's evolution is he just got tired of getting kicked out of everywhere, getting kicked off of everything. 
you get tired when you're living on the margins. You want mainstream respectability once again. I think I've kind of been able to... So, so Richard's teaching a new class about Plato's allegory of the cave, and uh, you can think of his own journey coming out of the cave back into the sunlight of mainstream respectability. Right? People want to be liked. Right? It's a very hard thing to live on the margins day in, day out. It can be edgy and exciting for a brief period, but it really starts to wear on you. I that. And I don't think... First off, I'm not doing anything worthy of being um, deplatformed, and then A, and then B, I generally do think, or I genuinely and generally do think that Substack is um, dedicated to free speech, you know, obviously within reason. And um, really what I'm focusing on now is just very different. So I, I think it's all going to work out. And um, anyway, it was $9 earlier. Yeah, and it's a lot easier to work out when you play within the rules, when you say what is socially acceptable, when you regain respectability, all right? You got in at six, you got a bargain. But um, I won't raise it, I will say that, barring by more style hyperinflation, you know, at which point it will be raised $10 every day. Um, I, uh, I will not raise that for a while. I think that's just a good kind of solid price. So this is a Richard Spencer Substack group call on uh, November 17th. <clears throat> you can release the Spencer uh, Nutraceutical by Alex Jones. I could just sell you guys sugar pills, yes. <laughs> so uh, Rich has got a new essay out making the case for banning Alex Jones. He says uh, a serial liar like Alex Jones just so degrades the public discourse that uh, we're better off having Alex Jones banned from social media. I've been ambivalent about Alex Jones. It didn't bother me when big social media companies banned him. Uh, on the other hand, I'm not as sure as Richard Spencer that it's a good thing. I'm just neutral on it I mean it's, it is kind of like this horrifying preserve perverse incentive where I'm trying to sell you guys like discussion courses on Thus Fuck Zarathustra and then if I were selling you guys dick pills like we would be making hundreds of thousands it's pretty depressing it's uh, only depressing if you have a misguided view of human nature and if you have a realistic understanding of yourself and of other people it's not so depressing I also have a different than um, Alex Jones does, but hopefully we'll see. Um, generally speaking, I, I feel this kind of weird, um, uh, this, this weird feeling right now of almost being sympathetic towards Trump again. Right, so when everyone else on the right-wing side is against Trump, like when the right-wing news media is turned against Trump in addition to the mainstream media, where Trump is just getting kicked and denied and degraded and debased by everyone, then Richard, the contrarian, is feeling a strange new respect for Donald Trump. Because he is so hated by the establishment. And so I, I almost have this, the Republican establishment, the, conserv the true conservatives, the Cucks. And I almost have this Pavlovian response to actually support him when he's being attacked by these people, or dismissed or ignored, and so on. Um, but he's, he is in pretty much the exact place where he was in 2015, which is basically being dismissed and ignored by the mainstream conser the conservative establishment, including Fox News, and um, being denounced, you know, in some quarters, and yet kind of sticking to his guns and doing it. Uh, I, I have to say, I, I've hated Trump for a while, but I kind of have a certain 
sympathy for him when he's in this position. It's, it's a weird feeling, to be honest. It's not so weird, uh, Richard. Um, but as I said, I mean... It's not such a weird feeling, Richard. You're a contrarian, right? Uh, no worries, mate. We, we understand that you're not going to come out with the, the same perspective as everyone else. So I think uh, not so strange why you're suddenly sympathetic to Trump. I just based on this, and I put up a 45-minute uh, monologue that I did that you guys can listen to um, you know, at the time. But I, I do think it's a, it's a very different time than 2015. Because in 2015, he was able to define himself so boldly with the build the wall and, you know, Mexicans are rapists. I mean, there was just this craziness right out of the gate of his campaign in 2015. And I just found his speech the other night just so remarkable for how boring it was. It was just a mainstream Republican speech with a few, you know, hot side items thrown into the mix, like we're going to execute drug dealers or something. But even though I do imagine that that would... Yeah, does, uh, does, does Trump have the energy, the enthusiasm the joy to, to run again, that's not evident. It takes a tremendous amount of energy to run for president. Generate a stir among his base. It, it just doesn't have the kind of uh, central mobilizing quality of, of build the wall under the Mexicans are rapists and stuff like that. Um, so anyway, I, I, guess, I, I guess you can tell, I just have a lot of ambivalence about um, where things are at the moment. But my general thesis is that the Trump campaign has always been this kind of upside down campaign. And that it's always relied on craziness. And absent that Dionysian quality, all your like all Trump is left with nothing. And the GOP is basically left. Okay, so when the left controls the cultural means of production and the left controls almost all of our institutions, revolt against an enemy who seems to control everything, right? That's gonna seem crazy. Uh, you're not going to necessarily do that coolly, calmly, rationally, and moderately. Uh, that kind of revolution is going to contain a considerable element of the crazy. With boring candidates and policies that are just clearly unpopular. You know, the GOP is left with, we won't cancel $10,000 of your student loans. And we... No, the, the main argument for voting for the GOP is to lock criminals up, to be tougher on criminals, lock them away thereby reducing crime rates. Second main argument for voting for GAP is that we're going to enforce border law. We're going to restrict immigration, both legal and illegal, as Donald Trump very successfully did by the 2020. So those are the first two primary reasons for voting for the GAP. And three is to resist uh, the war of uh, woke culture. So there are three main reasons for voting GAP ban abortion and we will offer tax cuts and stuff like that that's what they're left with and with trump you know you he brings to the party the craziness of build the wall the alt-right um uh white nationalism and then all of this morphing into covid conspiracies and QAnon and so on no with trump you get a lot of real talk right that, that's the advantage with Trump, right? You get some real talk. You get you get a level of honesty that is you know pretty rare among politicians. Yeah, that's what I figured. Um, I mean, I, I guess like one of the things it would never fly. It's, I think it's the, the ship's already sailed, kind of thing. But um, I, I mean, you could like uh, I don't know anybody that's on antidepressants or whatever. You're just like, okay, well, you, like we just you can't breathe. But I don't know, short of <laughs> you know, forcing some 
Right. I mean, really, like, that's kind of what it... And what I but it doesn't it ultimately solve the issue. The issue is that, like, it's too easy to be alive. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And also, the, the I mean, I know you were joking when you said sterilize everyone in antidepressants, but also the yeah. issue is, like, overdiagnosis and just ramp... You know, you live in the modern world, and it kind of makes you unhappy. And the fact that um, one of the things is that depressed people... Well, if we lived in a more traditional society, I suspect that uh, people would not be as unhappy. And I think a lot of the unhappiness, disconnection, mental illness is a result of people being disconnected from family, normal human connection, the community, which is something that's a lot easier to do when you don't have this vast array of civil rights laws that are restricting basic freedoms. Like other people depressed kind of, you know, being around themselves. You never really know. Yeah, I don't know if there are any answers to this. I mean, I think it's a real thing. and um, But I don't know. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I've kind of made this shift. I mean, I've, um, you know, Mark Brahman and I... Look, the main reason Richard made this shift is because he wants, you know, respectability. He's tired of being hated. But here he explains why he's not doing shows with Ed Dutton anymore. And instead, he's doing shows with Mark Brahman. Now, I miss Ed Dutton. I prefer that realist approach. I don't get any benefit from Mark Brahman, but uh, doing shows with Mark Brahman is essentially escape into a fantasy world. So some people like Game of Thrones, right? Some people like fantasy entertainment. Uh, Richard likes fantasy, right? He likes fantasies that he and Mark create. Uh, I don't get anything from him. I don't see the benefit of retreating to this fantastical, unreal, imaginary world that so entrances Richard and uh, Mark Brahman. Friends for a long time. Um, ever since he, you know, he I published his first articles at Radix Journal. Like, you know, Radix is alive again. But I published it um, a while ago, and um, more than a decade. And I do think that, like, what we're working on does offer solutions to things. And I, I do think the kind of like HBD stuff. And- so Richard says that what he and Mark are working on offers solutions. He's talking about Apolloism. So, you know, what exactly does Apolloism offer? It's, you know, it's just, you know, a watered-down, more socially acceptable form of uh, Nazi ideology. Okay. Seriously, what, uh, what problems does Apolloism answer? Okay. Realism better equips people for life because you are placing them in reality. You're describing reality to them, so they're less likely to be disconnected from reality. It's important, but it does become rather depressing, doesn't it? It only becomes depressing if you are out of touch with reality, the reality inside you or the reality outside of you. But reality is not inherently depressing. Like, know the truth, the truth will set you free. Like, reality is the beginning of wisdom. Reality is the beginning of effectiveness, like getting in touch with reality means becoming humble, right? You gain an appropriate understanding of where you stand vis-a-vis other people, right? But uh, I don't think Richard wants to stay in reality. He wants to live in a world of, of fantasy. Mark Rahman gives him this opportunity. Oh, yeah. I'm not, I'm not particularly, you know, happy reading this. This is not like bedtime material. Yeah. Just... Okay, so material can be awesome and great and important. It's not necessarily the stuff you want to read before you go to bed, right? So just because you don't want to read it before you go to bed doesn't mean that it's not important. No overarching cultural solution that we can actually offer. Well, how about 
just uh, becoming more exact and more precise about the nature of the truth, the nature of reality, right? R rather than you know, trying to offer these grand, you know, top-down Germanic theories. Right? Richard's very much kind of in the in the vein of German philosophy. So French and German thinkers, uh, they loved grand theories, right? They loved to propound grand theories, and they're pretty weak on evidence and empiricism. Now, in the Anglo tradition, all right, the Anglo tradition is much more empiricist, right? So Anglo scholars will come up with a bunch of empirical findings, then tentatively suggest a very modest theory. So French and German intellectuals love grand theories, but uh, these grand theories tend to be, you know, quite disconnected from reality. They're not particularly interested in providing the empirical support for their grand theories, and uh, Richard sounds very much like the, these continental philosophers as opposed to the Anglo's. So he yeah. just becomes like dwelling on, you know, this inevitable decline of the population or something. And I, I don't know. I, I think it's just, it kind of just, I, I just want to move away from that. Maybe and universal designer babies will be the solution yeah. where yeah, everyone is want, just genetic engineered out of it. Yeah. If you want a genetic white girl, watch the movie Danica. What's the movie? <laughs> I never saw it. Paradise. Yeah. <laughs> the original Rand Black Paul actually, <laughs> Rand Paul got into a hot water. I remember he plagiarized the Wikipedia article for Gattaca in his book. <laughs> just like, wow. He was like, guys, we... Yeah, just never have any interest in listening to politicians speak or reading what they have to say. It's such a low level of discourse that they offer. You can't have too much socialism. I mean, it's going to be it's going to be fucking Gattaca. All right, let's just fuck <laughs> on that socialism. Yeah, uh, <laughs> totally lame. <laughs> but whoever wrote that book for him was probably Jack Hunter, um, actually, who used to write for Talkies Magazine. Um, anyway, um, I'm almost sure he did it, but like, you plagiarized Wikipedia? Really? <laughs> it's cut and paste from the internet. <laughs> no one will notice. <laughs> so, what's your favorite Rand Paul book? What's your favorite Ron DeSantis book? No, what's your favorite Donald Trump book? Come on, man. Give me a break. But anyway, yeah, I just, uh, I don't know. I, I just think all this kind of whining about the demographic decline of the white race or something. I mean, we got to understand, like, why this is happening. Like, why is... Okay, Richard doesn't want to talk about it because it's socially unacceptable. We'll isolate him and uh, increase the problems that he has to face. So it's fine, right? You don't have to be a martyr, right? There's no need to say... You know, things that uh, come with you know a huge social price, but to then intellectualize the issue and say, oh, you know, I want to move towards cultural solutions, therefore I'm embracing Apolloism instead of realism, is a bit hard to take. Problem, and how can we reasonably solve this? Right, like you're saying, it's a spiritual problem first. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, I don't want to. Uh, I keep so spiritual. That can mean many different things. And they're effective vehicles for you know, a spiritual connection. But they're also a whole bunch of you know, nonsense that just cloak themselves as spiritual. So how can you tell the difference between the real thing and the nonsense? By the fruits, right? By the behavior of people who embrace you know, these varying forms of spirituality. These prefaces of, I don't want to be a divisive drama queen, but and then I just say what I'm about to say. So I had this conversation last night with... Um, Someone who's a member of this group, actually. I'm... So do you ever find yourself prefacing your conversations by saying, I don't want to be a divisive drama queen? Yeah. 
I wager that if you need to preface your conversations by saying, I don't want to be a divisive drama queen, it may indicate that you have something of a compulsion towards being a divisive drama queen. Or for, oh God, more than a decade as well. And we're both kind of on the same boat. Like, you know, I remember uh, she was there at the Beacon Club stuff. She's been to a number of Am Reds. I probably, I don't know how many Am Reds I went to, probably half a dozen or... You know, I, I think we were both kind of like, she was talking to me about it last night. She was like, oh, Am Reds this weekend. I'm so out of the loop, but um, it's just all the same stuff. You know, like, they're just saying the same thing over and over again for decades. And it's all this just kind of doom and gloom. Okay, so there are forms of social science that are replicable, right? There's certain basic truths that uh, you may see in more and more facets of life, such as the predictive value of IQ scores, right? And uh, it's not as exciting as having new you know, philosophical and spiritual insights for, for which uh, there's no necessary empirical evidence. Uh, so often the, the, the tried and true and the boring is the the most true and the most profound. The traditional American majority doesn't have a chance. It's just this endless doom and gloom. And it, on one level, you don't analyze the situation and really understand what's happening. And on another level, there's just, you're it's like trying to drain the ocean of people or something. It's just, they, the way they present the problem, there's just no real hope. I suppose the Greater Idaho project definitely fell through because they mentioned that a while ago, and that seemed like a little bit of. Who they mentioned that Cameron moved to Idaho? Yes, yes. Okay. Greater that's Idaho. different than. It's a slight. I doubt Jared signed off on that actually. That's actually different than. That's actually different than Greater Idaho. So, backstory to this is uh, Richard feels hurt that uh, Jared Taylor doesn't want him at Amran events. That uh, Jared Taylor doesn't want him to speak for him because. You know, Richard embraced Nazism with the hail our people, you know, the Sieg Heil and the, or the, the Nazi talk that Richard embraced. So therefore, Richard was you know, pushed away by Jared. And that's that's large part of the story that Richard's not talking about here. Greater Idaho is basically the idea of all of Oregon outside of, like, Portland oh, and surrounding areas of joining Idaho. And moving to Idaho is part of the Northwest imperative where white nationalists move to the Pacific Northwest area hope for, and have the system collapse or win a war against the U.S. and they create a white nationalist for... Okay, so that's absurd. I'm thinking that uh, you know, these nationalists are going to move to the Northwest and then win a war against America or the whole system's going to collapse and they're going to take over. I talk about living in fantasy land. Cuba... That's at odds with the U.S. Two different guys, things. Um, give me a punch. I, I don't. Well, I don't know if it would involve. I'm not, I'm, voting, I'm not saying you support it. I know. I, I know you're representing. I'm not going to shoot the messenger here. But guys, give me a fucking break. This, you know, Northwest. I mean, I guess it's ironic that I'm saying this, being that I have actually done. <laughs> I actually. Yeah. So Richard, for years, you know, is most famous for calling for an ethnostate, state, right? For calling for, for the creation of this exact sort of thing. Now he's disavowing. I'm making fun of um, Guys, it's just not happening. And we don't want that to happen. And, like, a bunch of white nationalists in Montana taking on the government, yeah, like, that is a one-way ticket to death. 
Yeah, I don't, I don't know the details of it conflicting with the current government and like seceding from the any of that stuff. Maybe. See, do you know what they do? Do you know what they do? The, the assumption that they have, which is just wrong, is the same assumption that Russians have, which is that America slash NATO slash the West is gay. And that's, oh my yeah. god, they have a they have a black guy in charge. Yeah, Rich is making a good point here that uh, there's a lot of dismissal on parts of the distant right that uh, America and NATO are just gay, therefore not formidable. Uh, just uh, doomed to decadence and decline. And uh, American power, like Chinese power, Russian power, is relative compared to other nations and compared to the other major powers. The United States of America is in fantastic shape to be even more dominant in the years ahead than it is now. Military and they have some homosexual in the Marine Corps, so we could just beat them. We could just go out there with our shotguns, baseball bats, and kick their ass right now. No, yeah, I don't you can't. You can't. I mean, I don't <laughs> Even though I obviously you know still sympathize with with them, and of course I guess all of us have our sympathies with them, but it's like yeah, that, that is quite sad how they're on this fringe of Russia. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But to, to go back to like the the, the all, all the stuff. I mean, it's like if we're just lamenting demographics, and you know, I'm not against like seriously talking about demographics or something, but if we're just lamenting demographics, like that's going to be a real sob story. Nobody is endorsing just lamenting demographics, but there are more sophisticated and accurate ways of understanding demographics, right? The, the white percentage of the population in the United States is vastly underestimated by U.S. Census Bureau methods. So if that's your thing, if that's something you're really interested in, then you should probably become more sophisticated and understand what's really going on. So the way the U.S. Census Bureau works is that if people identify as part Asian or part black or part Latino, all right, they're counted in the U.S. Census as wholly that, right? So if someone's 116th black or 116th Asian or 116th Latino, and they put down the U.S. Census Bureau that they're, you know, part Asian and part white, the U.S. Census Bureau counts them as 100% Asian. So the white percentage of the population is dramatically undercounted by U.S. Census Bureau figures, and the non-white section is dramatically overcounted and those Asians, Blacks, and Latinos who live in the United States, due to the overwhelming nature of America still being white, they're very likely to marry someone white and therefore have white children. There's just, like, there are really serious problems out there, and if you want to make yourself feel bad, you can do that pretty easily with just talking about demographics. And, you know, I know this might... Yeah, if you talk about them in an ignorant way. I noticed that many people in distant spheres just want to embrace the suck. They just want to embrace how bad everything is, how there's absolutely no hope, because I think it lets them off the hook for responsibility, for, for doing anything with their lives. Uh, it just kind of gives them permission to be vile and beastly and disgusting because it's all hopeless. Not almost like cowardly or something, but you know, if something is that bad, like, you, you kind of have to move off it. And just okay, if there there is grim news, right? Maybe there are just other things in life that you should be focusing on, not just on the grim news, right? You can face reality and also have room in your life for things that are positive and beautiful and true and good, and things that are uplift you rather than things that uh, drag you down. So you can judge. You know, what you do by its effect on you. Is it having a good effect on you? Is it making you happier, more effective? Right? Is it making you a better person? Is it making you more sober or less sober? Endlessly talking, like, I, I don't even, I don't know how much they even do black crime anymore, but like, just 
endlessly publishing articles about how like white white America is being demeaned or something, it just gets depressing and old and just I don't know. It's just you're living in a graveyard. And I, it's just not. I don't know. I, 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 when I was a lot younger, I, and I sometimes get into this where I like judge other people for not going through what I've gone through. But, you know, even when they're younger than I am, it's like you should be up to speed with me. Like, but but at the same time, like I remember, like you know, I don't know, like twenty. I forgot my first day I You know, two, I think it might have even been two thousand and eight when I was editing Talkies Magazine or whatever. And it was like, ah, oh, you know, this is so edgy. You know, it's like oh, everything is taboo. We're just talking about so like badass. But yeah. After a while, when they talk about the same thing over and over, it's just not that badass anymore. It's just endless whining about the pretty obvious problems that everyone agrees upon. And I do think it's kind of, I don't know, it's just static. I think it's almost unhealthy. Okay, wait, 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 wait. So this is, this is the uh, community that Richard's essentially been exiled from. So maybe, uh, hey guys. maybe you should uh, provide uh, that context. He needs to kind of blow them out of the water or something. So well, I think the flight needs to be kind of they limit the amount of top opening for the next program. It might very well be a good way to make money. I do think that, like, yeah, she wasn't asked at 26. But again, we're past all this. And I think the way... Okay, he's not a big fan of Lauren Loma. You, know, you can't just pull... Yeah, yeah, if you want, it's just genetic engineered out of it. Yeah, if you wanted to... All right, let's just say... Pull off on that social... Yeah, uh, <laughs> okay, I got to fast forward here. I lost my place. Well, maybe you move off it as your primary focus. Doesn't mean you need to ignore it. Like, I, I don't even, I don't know how much they even do black crime anymore, but like, just endlessly publishing articles about how, like, white, white America is being demeaned or something, it just gets depressing and old. And just, I don't know, it's just, you're living in a graveyard. And I, it's just not, I don't know. I, 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 Look, all group identities are built in significant part by victimhood. If we, we're being screwed over, we're being oppressed, we've been demeaned, we've been cheated, we've been raped, we've been murdered, right? That's a large part of, of group identity. Now, it shouldn't be 100% of your group identity, but that is a large part of the nature of group identity, be it Jewish, black, Christian, whatever. When I was a lot younger, I, and I sometimes get into this where I like judge other people for not going through what I've gone through, but, you know, even when they're younger than I am, it's like, you should be up to speed with me, like, but... But at the same time, like, I remember, like, you know, I don't know, like, 20, I forgot my first day I'm you know, two, I think it might have even been 2008 when I was editing Talkies Magazine or whatever, and it was like, ah, oh, you know, this is so edgy, you know, it's like, dog, oh, everything is taboo, we're just talking about so, like, that. So I had that sort of experience when I've been going to Orthodox synagogues for a long time, and then I went to a conservative synagogue where you could openly talk about uh, historical criticism, biblical criticism, the historicity of the exodus and I thought oh this is so edgy this is so cool you know free speech free scholarly inquiry I was going to the library minion at, at Beth Arm we had much of the intelligentsia of conservative Judaism in Los Angeles so I really enjoyed that for a few weeks but I ended up missing the connection and and the bonds that come with traditional Judaism okay 
Okay, so here is your arm saying that uh, there's not an inherent connection between democracy and conservatism. Kind of the, the relational dimension is above that. So I, I wonder what, um, you know, because essentially at this point in, in kind of our political history, politics is almost synonymous with democracy. I mean, what, what position does democracy hold here? Because democracy essentially uh, is... Uh, downstream from this perspective of, okay, we have the individual consent, autonomy is the, the, the primacy, so they become the, the vehicle of, um, of kind of um, political voice. Um, I, I wonder how that plays into, into, into your worldview. Well, your to, arm has to, to begin with, conservatives don't, you know, conservatives are not, are not necessarily Democrats. Um, that is such an important point, all right? Conservatism is not necessarily democratic. Conservatives are not necessarily small-d Democrats. How would Forty answer her final question? Which writer you value whom no one has ever heard of? Uh, Stephen Turner, right? The, the philosopher of the social sciences, right? I think that, that would be my question. Take the fiction, it is good for the nefesh. Yeah, sometimes... All right, sometimes some fiction is good for the, for the nefesh, right? So what's good for the nefesh is a very important question. Uh, not the only question, right? There's time to, to deal into harsh reality. But this is, this is really important that Yoram Mazzoni is making point point here that uh, conservatives are not necessarily small-d Democrats. There are more important values than democracy and human rights. Right? An obsession with human rights, natural rights... Uh, democracy, process, parliament, government by discussion, right? These are liberal obsessions. These are not conservative obsessions. Conservative obsessions are heritage and people. The, the, uh, the, the tradition that I'm writing about in this book uh, is, uh, is, is one that uh, developed out of, uh, out of monarchy. And this is Yoram Hazoni's book, What is There to Conserve? Out of British monarchy, and uh, the, the, the English monarchy was, uh, for a very very long time, uh, somewhat different from uh, from you know from French or, or, or German monarchs. Uh, in in, in the, uh, the English the traditional English constitution uh, had a place for, uh, for for people other than the king in, in decision making. So if we take um, "In Praise of the Laws of England" by John Fortescue, which was written around 1470, uh, we we see that his his argument is that the people of England are are better off because. Uh, because the, uh, the, the parliament, the, the bicameral legislature, is responsible for laws and is responsible for uh, for taxation, and the king can't simply do whatever he wants. And uh, out of this structure of, uh, of a tradition of, uh, of power sharing between between the king and his subjects, uh, you, you, you get the gradual development of uh, of the American Constitution, which in its uh, in its early version was very very similar to the English Constitution, and. Uh, None of the people, none of the people involved in, in drafting any of these constitutions, called them democracy at that time. Uh, but still, uh, Fortescue claims that his that among the advantages of the English Constitution is that the people are freer than they are in other countries. When, you know. Right, you can have a lot more freedom sometimes in an authoritarian regime that's not democratic than in a democracy. Right, democracy and liberal human rights are often at odds, right? A liberal society is not necessarily a democratic society. So in a liberal society, people have inalienable rights, which puts considerable limits to democracy. So often the more democracy you have, the fewer rights you have. The more rights you have, the less democracy you have. And so there are 
there are things that are more important than processes, such as the preservation, safety, and prosperity of your people. When he says free, he's obviously not talking about you know what modern liberals mean when they say free. But uh, but he gives examples. He says for you know for example, um, the king cannot uh, enter the house of an English uh, an English farmer without his permission, and he certainly can't take things from the English farmer without his permission, or at least without a law from from, from the legislature. Uh, so and uh, uh, and, and Fortescue associates these kinds of rights with uh, with freedom. He says says that that. Uh, the, 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 the reason that the English people uh, flourish um, financially and the reason that they eat better than in other countries is uh, is because of the sanctity of property and because of it. Right, so if you're struggling to eat, right, if you're struggling to survive, you're struggling with violent crime, then democratic processes and the finer points of you know parliamentary discussions and uh, political parties is probably not a top priority. People want results, sometimes democracy delivers the best results, sometimes liberalism delivers the best results, but liberalism always needs something plus, right? Liberalism's never enough for society. You need liberalism plus nationalism or liberalism plus socialism, right? Liberalism always needs something plus. This is a point Ross Douthat made in a column a couple of months ago. Constitution that protects their property. So all of these things exist already in, uh, in the 1400s in England, uh, but I don't think anybody would call it a democracy. So I, 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 think, I think that that if you ask, you know, how does how does a conservative uh, how does a conservative in this tradition view democracy? I think that, that uh, uh, the, 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 the question is always: uh, Does it improve things or does it make things worse? Exactly. Does it improve things or does it make things worse for your people, for a particular people, at a particular time and place? Right? Sometimes democracy for your particular people at a particular time and place will make things better. At other times, a monarchy will work better. At other times, a tenocracy will work better. Uh, other times, you'll be better off ruled by, by priests. Uh, other times, you'll be better off in an authoritarian regime. Right? What makes things better for your people? That's the conservative concern. And uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the democratization of, uh, of the American Republic, you know, I don't know. I, 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 I don't think that the American Republic was doing badly uh, before, the, before the two world wars. And if we're going to talk about uh, where things go wrong, I'm not sure that things go wrong because of the fact that there's a uh, uh, extended suffrage in the United States. But we can, you know, we can talk about that. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I think that the, the issue that I see with um, with democracy is that it, it brings in. Essentially, you could also say that it it becomes ruled by media because you know where, where does the the informed citizen get their their information? To be- no, democracy has many problems, but it's not ruled by media. Right? People did not evolve to be gullible. Right? The media doesn't you know, change a lot of minds. Right? There are no states where there's rule by media. Right? There's just no empirical foundation for that sort of observation. That's silly. To be so informed to actually make a, yeah, a decision on a political level. Um, and then you know, that there's competing interests there. And it also brings in... Um, it turns politics into the matter of everyday life. Like there is a certain freedom from politics that you have in, in alternative systems that I think is, is quite underrated. Um, in the sense that uh, now it's, it's become it's become a complete obsession. It's, it's become synonymous to religion. Like the, the moment the religion you know left through the door, politics entered through the window, and now this is this is essentially the, the animating spirit for so much tribalism for, for all of this. So um, I mean I think that's uh, <laughs> people might might argue with me that you know it's a it's a price worth paying, but it, it might also not be. Well, I look I. I... I understand what you're saying. I, I, I think it's very easy and appropriate to look at what there is now and say, you know, what there is now is really terrible. Uh, the reason I say this is because what there is now really is terrible, because 
I mean, we 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 are watching the uh, the disintegration of um, of American society and the American nation. And right. So the the disintegration or the growth or strengthening of a society that that's more important than uh, democracy sometimes. All right. So so beautiful here in Manly. I've walked 13 miles today. Pretty tired, maybe not as sharp as I was at uh, 6 a.m. Now that it's 6.09 p.m. I found some protein yogurt at a local Kohl's store. Okay, Kohl's is like Kmart. So I had a protein yogurt and two mandarins to fortify me. I had uh, five protein bars for lunch. And such a gorgeous day. I've just been chewing up the miles here in Manly. We're watching a very similar thing happen in the UK. And it's it's not at all clear that, you know, that, that having uh, moved to all freedom all the time is the only, the, the only value that's emphasized to people. Right, yeah. More freedom. More and more freedom. And it's not necessarily a good thing. Societies. It's not at all clear that they can, that they can survive. I mean, I, I just don't know that many people who have, have a great deal of confidence that the United States is going to exist in five years from now. And now I'm, I'm a little bit older than, than you are and uh, probably than many of the listeners. So I can... Uh, I, I can remember a time in, in which it, it didn't seem like the United States was on, on, on the verge of disintegrating. And so, you know, my my uh, my view of citizens voting and, and, and media striving to influence them is somewhat different because um, because when I was growing up in, in New Jersey, I was born in Israel, but I grew up in the United States. And when I was growing up, um, you know, certainly uh, you knew that the major publications had a had a liberal slant, um, but. So I've got hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth of electronic equipment in my bag there on the bench, but I'm not afraid that someone's going to steal it when I turn my back. It's really nice being in a safe place. You could basically count on their news to be uh, reliable. In other words, you, you, you could in those days be someone who rejected the New York Times editorial line, um, but you could still um, trust that most of what it was that they were reporting was was uh, usefully accurate. And in the same way, the... the um, it, 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 it was impossible for the uh, for the media, even if most of the media were liberal, it was impossible for them to uh, to just control the way that people think because because the, as they were competing media, like the, the, the current condition in which virtually all major media broadcast the, the same thoughts. So when I was here in Australia in the 1970s and 1980s, right, there were a lot of topless women bathing on the beach. Probably a third of women under 30 above 15 or topless, but uh, that's changed since the influx of Muslims in the 1990s. So I was out here in 89, there were still topless bathers galore at the beach, but uh, during the 1990s and even after 2001, large influx of Muslims into Australia, and uh, with that, the, the end, essentially, of the topless bathers on the beach. as a, uh, a, a, in order to advance a political uh, agenda. This is a new thing. I mean, I, I, I certainly don't want to claim that, uh, you know, that uh, democracy always functions perfectly well, but uh, what we're seeing right now is a, uh, is a, a catastrophic shift from uh, a, uh, a culture in which um, reporters thought that you know, whatever, whatever party they voted for, they thought that you know, something like Hunter Biden's laptop would be... Okay, this, this isn't uh, exactly a catastrophic change. Unfortunate, not not catas- catastrophic. Uh, I swear that any one of them would want to break and want to get the lead in because corruption was simply uh, something that anybody can get a, get a 
up till the three four corner had corruption. It didn't matter whether it was the right or the left. So again, without without saying that it was utopian, I think that we have entered a, a period of uh, utter dysfunction in uh, the way that the media functions and uh, also other institutions at uh, the, the, uh, the, the universities, which 30 years ago were able to tolerate uh, a conservative or a rightist view on the faculty or among the students. And today, recently, most places, universities simply cannot tolerate these kinds of views. And, and, and we can go on the government, the bureaucracy, and, and so on. So we are certainly facing a, a horrific crisis, and we need to talk about what, if anything, can be done to get out of it. But I think that uh, we should not exaggerate. I think it would be a mistake to exaggerate the uh, the kind of influence that the kind of political system you have has on whether it works or not. Because the reality. So this is Yoram Hazoni speaking on his book, What Is There to Conserve? Is that um, I think that many different kinds of political systems can be made to work well if the people are inheriting um, traditions of mutual uh, loyalty and upholding. Yeah, respect for tradition. Right, that's the key part. Of, of being conservative, right? You, you think that time-tested ways of organizing people and communities is likely to be more effective than, uh, you know, radical new innovations. And, and striving to make it work. And at the moment that the people are inheriting uh, disloyalty and contempt for one another and for the system itself, it, it doesn't matter how beautiful and perfect it is on paper, it will, still, it, it will just stop working, and that's what we're seeing right now. Yeah, it feels to me like in, in liberalism itself, you know, the kind of the, the baked in, um, essentially the, the self-correcting uh, feature of liberalism tends to become a god in itself. Like the idea that, okay, you know, we, we are striving, essentially that's kind of the instinct of liberalism. We're always striving to morally improve, to end up on the right side of history. Uh, and, and that idea in itself uh, kind of leads to that, that churning kind of resentment of the present moment, uh, because we are, of course, still in the process of moral evolution. We kind of have to be a little bit, at least, um, resentful. Yeah, and this uh, constantly striving for moral improvement, it's uh, largely a delusion, right? There are just certain inherent you know, nasty qualities to being human, and tradition usually offers us you know, more effective ways to channel them. Of, of our brethren of the, per, the, the current situation, because we remember in the past we were, obviously the past is a very uh, immoral place, or, you know, immoral place. Uh, the, the yeah, that is a quintessential liberal view. The past was a very immoral place, and now we're just living through ever-increasing amounts of freedom. Present, we're constantly improving, and only in the future will actual morality be possible. And even then, you know, you're still kind of in the churning permanent revolution. So I feel if, um, with, with kind of this current perspective, is, is, is it even possible to, um, I don't know, love your brethren, you know, have, have any sort of ties to, to any sort of... So Alex Kashuda is not a particularly good uh, podcast host. She's just all over the place with her, with her questions. Is there an Australian Karen archetype? Not really. I mean, there are some Karens, Australian Karens, like American Karens, but it's not a major archetype of uh, Australian personality. Australians tend to be pretty easygoing. I don't think Karens are easygoing. But uh, Alex Kashuda just kind of meanders, right? Not exactly sharp and brief in her questions. The best questions are the shortest questions historical, um, right, making, making any sort of peace with your own history? Well, we, we just, uh, we just switched topics from democracy. Yeah, so she's just all over the place. Democracy and liberalism, obviously, are not, they're not the same thing. But democracy is, is, is an extended suffrage where uh, many more people get to participate in, uh, uh, in uh, electing at least certain parts, if not all parts, of, of the government. Uh, liberalism is not, you know, it's not a system of government. Liberalism is a, uh, is a set of ideas, um, and uh, yeah, that's a great point. Liberalism, not a system of government, it's a set of ideas. 
it, there needs to be liberalism plus, you know, liberalism plus democracy, liberalism plus nationalism. These passerbyers look more in shape than the average fat, lazy American. I thought so too, but we're in the eastern suburbs of Sydney where the more affluent, the, the smarter people live, so they tend to be in better shape. Overall, I've, I found out to my dismay, and this did not used to be true, but now Australians are on average just as obese as Americans, I, I think. It was not that way until maybe the last uh, 10, 20 years. So when I came to America in 1977, I was stunned at the huge number of fat people. But uh, with each passing year, it seems like uh, Australians more and more resemble Americans, though not on Sydney's eastern suburbs, where people tend to be in pretty good shape. It, it, it comes very close, and it's formed to being a kind of religion, um, because um, the, the, the assertion that everybody is... Um, uh, that everyone is perfectly free and perfectly equal, uh, and that they only need to take on obligations that they uh, that they consent to. And you were just referring to a, to a, a third plank in, in, in a lot of liberalism, which is uh, the, the, the claim that all human beings, all that human beings need to do is think and argue, and then we'll figure all the answers to everything out just by thinking. Um, and we, we don't need any kind of inheritance or tradition to build on. This this set of axioms is it, it is a kind of a religion, and uh, what it does is it. it it undercuts um, and, and, and blots out uh, any kind of good that's inherited from the past. And you know, a very, very dramatic example of this is uh, Thomas Jefferson, the, uh, one of the American founders who uh, who uh, was quite excessive in his liberalism and it was in many ways a you know a model for what we're seeing today. And, and Jefferson said that, that repeatedly that every generation is uh, related to the previous generation uh, as if it were a foreign country. He thought that, you know, that every 20 years you should just start from scratch and, uh, and, and make up all the, all the laws that you think are good for you, and, and, then, and then 20 years later you'll just do it again. So when you refer to this uh, permanent revolution, um, you, you really are talking about something that is baked in. It, it is baked into liberalism. And the, the, the reason that the United States and, and Britain were able to, to survive for two or three centuries uh, without decaying is not, is, is not because uh, there were liberals, but because there were conservatives. There were large numbers of people whose focus was on maintaining inherited traditions. And that means that they thought a great deal. They, they, they thought a great deal about what you need to do in order for um, for your inherited traditions to be uh, transmitted to future generations. And all of that comes to sort of a crashing end after the Second World War. Uh, we can argue about why it does. But it's only after the Second World War that uh, the that, uh, structure become uh, dispensable and, and are eliminated from, from you know, the school system and from public Okay, this is Yoram Hazoni speaking with Alex Kashuta, that's K-A-S-C-H-U-T-A, lives in Romania, and I'm just going to leave it there for now, bye-bye.